Last week we began a new series when we introduced the topic of the Holy Spirit. And as we've said, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Uh, and many Christians, they know little about uh, the Holy Spirit, especially Reformed Presbyterians. Now, I grew up in a Pentecostal church uh, in the Assemblies of God. Uh, many of you might not know much about Pentecostals, but basically we uh, were the holy rollers. All right? We were holy because we didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or hung around people that do. And we were rollers because people would get so spiritually excited that they would literally roll on the floor. Holy rollers. Well, I have to tell you that I grew up in a church where there was speaking in tongues, where demons were being cast out, and there were words of prophecy. I can tell you, I've, I've seen it all. Now, my bachelor's degree was from a Assemblies of God Bible college, and it was during that time that I became disenchanted with the emotionalism and often the spiritual manipulation that coincides with that flavor of Christianity. But I've never forgotten their passion for the Word of God, and I've never forgotten their high expectation that God was going to show up. As I grew as a Christian studying God's Word, I slowly became convinced of the Reformed faith, and now I consider myself to be a passionate Presbyterian or a radically Reformed Christian. Now I want you to know that I've been on both sides. I've lived in both sides. I've hung out with the fanatical Pentecostals and as well as the frozen Presbyterians. And in my opinion, the Pentecostals go too far in one direction and the Presbyterians go too far in the other. Now, many Pentecostals depend too much on spiritual experiences, and many Presbyterians don't have any spiritual experiences at all. It's been my experience that many Presbyterians know little about the Holy Spirit, and depend too little on him in their daily lives. Many people are surprised to learn that John Calvin's claim to fame was not the five points of Calvinism. John Calvin's claim to fame was he was the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Now, Calvin was no charismatic, but he understood and sought for the deep work of the Holy Spirit in his life, in his teachings, and in his preaching. Now, according to Calvin, all positive knowledge of God derives from Scripture. And Scripture must, must judge all claims of God. But Calvin understood that the authority of Scripture rests on the Holy Spirit, who inspired it. 
And a valid understanding of Scripture rests on the enlightenment from the Holy Spirit. So he sought earnestly for the fullness of the Spirit in his life, his teachings, and his preaching. Now, believers in Christ need a full dose of the Holy Spirit. That's how Presbyterians would say it. Believers in Christ need a full dose of the Holy Ghost. That's how a Pentecostal would say it. But regardless, if you're a Presbyterian or Pentecostal, the, the point is true. We all need a full dose. Now, before we get more acquainted with the Holy Spirit this morning, I, again, I want to take a moment to consider the doctrine of the Holy Trinity to make sure we're all on the same page. As I shared last week, our church fathers have always sought to provide a clear biblical teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. They would ask questions like, are there more gods than one? And again, the answer, there is only one living and true God. And then they would ask, well, how many persons does this Godhead exist? And the answer would be, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are one, the same substance, and equal in power and glory. Now again, they say that repetition is the best teacher, so I'll give you the illustration again. Let's just say that everything we know about God falls within inside that circle. That he's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's God. But within this circle, we find the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same in substance, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And equal in their power and glory. Because there's one God... In three persons. Now, it's important that we understand that if we're going to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, as I shared before, the word person is a word used within Christian theology to aid us in our role in understanding that the Father, His primary role is creator and sustainer. The Son, primary role, is Redeemer and Lord. And the Holy Spirit's primary role is Comforter and Guide. One God in three persons. Now, this is not meant to suggest that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are people, but rather to distinguish their functionality together in oneness. When we speak of the Spirit as a person, of course, we don't mean the Spirit is a human being. Now, the Belgic Confession is one of the earliest Reformed confessions that was written in the early 1500s. And it uses careful wording in an attempt to give us a biblical understanding of the Trinity or the Godhead. Now, I think you might think it's boring, but I think it's important 
to read historical confessions and creeds to help us realize that Christians throughout the ages have sought to bring biblical clarity and understanding to the people of God. We didn't just think this up. Christianity didn't come into play with Billy Graham. I don't know if you know that or not. We've been at this for two millennium. And as I shared before, language is inadequate. Language is incapable to fully describe the indescribable, immeasurable, and infinite majesty and glory of God. But language is all we have. As the apostle writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. But all we have is language to help us to understand this magnificent God. So the church for two millenniums has written beautiful confessions so that the people of God would have resources to understand what the Bible tells us about God. And I want to take a moment just to read for you the Belgic Confession, Article 8, entitled The Trinity. I love historical confessions of faith because they provide us a sequence of thought and a sequence of truth to help us to put things in the right order. Are you all here with me this morning? Okay. 50%. That's pretty good. Belgium Confession, Article 8, Paragraph 1. In keeping with this truth and word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence and whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they're one essence, but they have different roles. Paragraph 2. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Paragraph 3. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has a distinct substance distinguished by characteristics yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. It is evident, then, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these, three, these persons, thus distinct, are neither divided nor fused, are mixed together. Lastly, for the Father did not take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without the Son, nor without the Spirit. 
since all these are equal from eternity in one and the same essence. There is neither a first or a last, for all three are one in truth, power, goodness, and mercy. As the apostle gives the blessing, may the God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So now let's get acquainted with this Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes when you're introduced to someone, you might be intimidated. You might be intimidated because this person is much taller than you are. You might be intimidated because this person has a higher intelligence than you do. You might be intimidated because this person has experienced more success, has more money and more possessions than you have. Now, last week I sought to introduce you to the Holy Spirit, and this morning I want you to get more acquainted with Him. But please don't be intimidated. I think that's one of the problems that Presbyterians have. They don't want to be labeled as a Pentecostal or charismatic. They're intimidated to allow the fullness of the Spirit to come upon them. But my desire today is that every one of us would be filled with the Spirit. Now there are those within the church that teach that the fullness of the Spirit is only for those who possess a certain spiritual gift. If you don't have this spiritual gift, you don't have the fullness of the Spirit. And there are others that teach that the only way you can have the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, is that you have some sort of spiritual experience that validates the fact that you have the fullness of the Spirit. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit already dwells within believers. Listen to these verses. After listening to the message of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge to our inheritance. So when does the Holy Spirit, when do we receive the Holy Spirit? We receive the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ. He's given to us as a pledge, as an inheritance. Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So if you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And then again we see, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's a fact. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The fullness of the Spirit is not only for those who possess a certain spiritual gift. The fullness of the Spirit is not only for those who have, a, have experienced certain spiritual experiences. The fullness of the Spirit is not just for a select few. It is for all of God's people, from the greatest to the least. The fullness of the Spirit is not just for the first Christians, 
but is for all Christians throughout the ages. As the scripture records, the promise of the Spirit is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So when the Lord God calls you to himself, you receive the Spirit. The Spirit is in you, dwells in you. But many times we don't maximize the ministry of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Even though the Bible is clear that the Spirit is given to every believer, many Christians do not enjoy the fullness of His presence. Now, one of the qualifications for the first deacons that we find recorded in the book of Acts was that they would be full of the Spirit. Now remember, they're choosing out seven men from the midst of this congregation at this time that were several thousand people. But notice they wanted seven who were full of the Holy Spirit. So even within the early church, we see that people weren't maximizing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They want to make sure these first deacons were full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen who was the first Christian martyr of the early church, was a man who was full of the Spirit. Barnabas, which was his, name, his nickname was the son of encouragement, says, the scripture says that he was full of the Spirit. You see, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is making a distinction that, yeah, you have all these Christians... But you have these that are really experiencing the fullness of the Spirit in their lives. Now, I believe this phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, describes a person who habitually lives with every area of their life under the control of the Spirit. There are certain ones in the, in the scriptures that are identified as being full of the Holy Spirit because of their craftsmanship. Because of their, their work. So the fact is, is that we can experience the fullness of the Spirit in our occupations. There are those who experience the fullness of the Spirit in ministry. There are those who experience the fullness of the, of, of the Spirit as they serve, as volunteers, as they minister to their families, as they get an education. The idea is that in every facet of our lives, we're seeking to be full of the Holy Spirit. That we are truly being guided by Him, taught by Him, and following Him. Now, a person who has a fullness of the Holy Spirit is not self-willed, but rather they're spirit-filled. So there's this crucifixion of the flesh that takes place. Constantly, habitually, crucifying ourself, our self-will, so that the fullness of the Spirit would be within us. So you see that this fullness of the Spirit is not just some one-time experience, but rather it's the constant infilling of the Spirit within the person's life, where we continually cry out to God, Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. And the Lord actually commands us to be filled with the spirit. 
The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> now, one way to interpret this verse is, is to, to think that the, the, the Apostle is contrasting. He's contrasting the ways of the world to the Christian life. He's basically saying, don't follow the world's way to happiness, i.e. getting drunk, but follow the Lord's way of happiness, i.e. being filled with the Spirit. Now, even though I believe that this is a, a proper interpretation of this verse, I also believe that the apostle is not just contrasting, but he is making a comparison as well. In the way people purpose to get drunk, God's people should purpose to be filled with the Spirit. I don't know if you notice it or not, but people don't usually get drunk by accident. Is that true? I mean, you purposely say, okay, I'm going to have one drink. And then you say, I'm going to have another. And you start feeling a little bit, and then, uh, I can handle one more, I'll get an Uber. And then you'll, oh, I think I'm just going to have a good old time here tonight. I'm going to have another and another. And you purposely made the decisions along the way to have one, two, three, four. You basically made the decision that you were going to get drunk. Are, are, am I just living in a weird world, but is that the way it happens? People don't accidentally get drunk. People purposely get drunk. And so, the apostle is saying, so it should be with being filled with the Spirit. Purposely desire to get filled with the Spirit. Where one little sip isn't good enough. A little dab doesn't do you. You want more and more and more and more and more of the Spirit in your life. You purposely make decisions. Is I'm not content with the way I am right now in my fullness of the Holy Spirit. I want to get drunk in the Spirit. And that doesn't mean that you, actually, you become a holy roller at that point. That you do weird things. But the sense that you are really looking for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. A person doesn't get drunk by sipping a little nip. A person gets drunk by con the consumption of alcohol. So by comparison, a person isn't filled with the Spirit by just sipping a little nip. A person is filled with the Holy Spirit by consuming the Spirit. Drinking up the Spirit. Now, as I, as I prepared this sermon today, I thought, well, people are going to be kind of freaked out. The preacher talking about getting drunk and all that kind of stuff and, you know, getting drunk on the Spirit. And, and, and then I found out that I wasn't the first one to think of it. Jesus did. 
Jesus said this in reference to the Spirit. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And right under, under that verse, it says, and he said these things in reference to the Spirit. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus wants us to drink the Spirit. And in that same verse, he promises that if we do, then in our most beings will flow rivers of living water. So the idea, if we do this, if we desire to drink of the Spirit, then eventually in our lives, there's going to be this overflowing river of living waters in us. I guess the visual would be like the people up in the Carolinas who are experiencing these floods in their rivers from Hurricane Florence. That's basically the idea that Jesus says, if you are thirsty, if you acknowledge that you're thirsty, that you're not content, that you're parched, and you will begin to drink of, purposely drink of the Spirit, if you will do this habitually, Eventually, what you will find is that in your innermost being is this overflow of living water. If we drink of the Spirit, we will experience a deluge of God's presence in our lives. So my admonition today is for us all drink fully of the Spirit today. The ways of the world will keep you parched and dry but the Spirit will keep you refreshed and renewed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, drink up the fullness of the Spirit of God today. How do you do that? First of all, by admitting that you are dry, that you are thirsty, that you want more of God and you really desire the fullness of the Spirit of God to crucify areas of your life so that you might truly, truly experience the abundance of God's presence. The Lord prophesied through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my Spirit upon all mankind. Now, this last summer, Barbara and I had the pleasure to um, visit Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, Africa. Uh, Z- uh, the Victorian Falls is one of the seven natural wonders of the world. I, I, I looked online for pictures, and I decided not to show you any of them because none of the pictures do it justice. I'll just simply say... Victoria Falls makes Niagara Falls look like a water fountain. It is unbelievable. It's just a cascading of waterfalls that goes, I don't even know how long. Victoria Falls is one of the seven natural wonders of the world because it is the largest sheet of falling water in the world. The largest sheet of falling water 
in the world continuously, ongoingly. It's magnificent. Now here, back to this verse, the prophet Joel, the Lord prophesies to pour forth his spirit on all mankind. And this word pour means to gush out or to spill out exceedingly. (laughs) It seems that the Lord wants us to know what he wants to happen in our lives is like a Victorian falls of the Spirit of God. The fullness of the Spirit is not some sort of eyedropper blessing. It's the gushing out of the Spirit's power in our lives. The promise of the Spirit is a promise of the new covenant, which Peter told us was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. You see, the Lord promised to pour out His Holy Spirit on our sons and our daughters. And that's what we should expect. The Lord promised to gush out His Spirit on the young and the old. And that's what we should expect. The Lord promised to spill out his spirit on our bondservants and our masters. And that's what we should expect. The Lord promised to cascade his spirit on men and women. And that's what we should expect. We should expect that in these last days, which is what we're living in right now, again, the last days is the period of the time of the ascension of Christ until his second coming. So we're living in the last days. In these last days, I will cascade out my spirit upon all flesh. And that is what we should desire. Brothers and sisters, do not be satisfied with just little drop of the Spirit of God. Do not be satisfied with just a little trinkle. Don't be satisfied with a water fountain. Do not be satisfied with any other thing but a fullness. And it comes down to you. Will you open yourself up? And I'll ask God to flood you. With his presence. God desires that everyone in Christ would experience the full presence and power of the Holy Spirit, not just those who have certain spiritual gifts, but everyone who believes, not just those who have certain spiritual experiences, but everyone who believes. The fullness of the Spirit is not just for a select few, it's for all of God's people from the greatest to the least. Amen? And brothers and sisters, let's open up our lives. For the overflowing presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit to cascade himself in every area of our lives. Our work, our family, our thoughts, our money, our retirements, our careers, whatever stage of life you're in. Asking the Lord to cascade his presence and his power, his person into your life. Let's get intimately acquainted with the Holy Spirit. I thought about how to conclude uh, this morning and, and then uh, these words came to me. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand 
And if you agree with these words, then we would recite them together like a, a prayer or a, or a confession. I want to make sure that you're comfortable with that. So here it is. Can we have it on the, on the screen? Lord, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for your spirit. My soul thirsts for your spirit like the one living in a dry and weary land where there is no water. O oh God, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. I shall from this day seek for this day forth seek earnestly for the fullness of your spirit in my life. Let's stand together. If you can agree with, with that prayer, with that short, simple confession, then let's put it back on the screen, if you would. Put that back on the screen. Yeah, you guys can come up. Let's read together. Lord, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for your spirit. My soul thirsts for your spirit like one living in a dry and weary land where there is no water. O oh God, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. I shall from this day forth seek earnestly for the fullness of your spirit in my life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would hear our confessions, hear our prayer today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.